Welcome to the GeoMob Podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, whether for fun or profit. Welcome to another GeoMob Podcast. This morning, it's my pleasure to be talking with Rebecca Firth. I first met Rebecca in 2018 when she was instrumental in bringing the Hot Summit together with Phosphagy and Dar es Salaam. I think that was a bit of a breakthrough both for HOT and for OSGO and it was the largest conference that we ever held, we've held to date. Um, a few weeks ago, Rebecca was announced as the new Executive Director of the Humanitarian OpenStreetMap team, or HOT as it's generally known. And I was fast out the blocks to invite her to get on this podcast. It's taken us a couple of weeks to actually find a date that works for both of us, but here we are this morning. Um, Rebecca's been with HOT since 2016, serving as Director of Strategy and Programs, and then as the Interim Executive Director before she started the job. Um, she holds a Bachelor's and a Master's Degree in Geography from the University of Cambridge. Uh, we're both Cambridge graduates. And she focused on international development. Rebecca's lived and worked in Borneo, Japan, Colombia and Peru. And now I'm really jealous. Jealous, You know, I mean, what a CV that is. Fantastic. Um, so, Rebecca, welcome to the GMR podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. So, before we talk about HOT, um, just a little bit about that CV. I mean, what a journey. Um, what took you to Borneo and Japan and Colombia? Um, so, a great question. Um, I think the primary driver was just wanting to understand more about the world. I was a geography student and obviously very interested and excited about the world and um, being able to kind of live in places which had kind of incredibly different cultures and different um, sort of ways of living was um, really uh, exciting. Um, I actually started working for HOT when I lived in Colombia and then Peru um, and I think that was also a really sort of wonderful opportunity for me to be able to be close to some of the contexts that we were working in to understand uh, more about the limitations of what we were doing in those environments and more about the kind of barriers and things that made it hard um, so yeah it was a wonderful experience and something I I dearly miss right because now you're back in London and um so there may be one or two people out there who haven't heard from HOT. They are a rare species. Um, but just tell us a little bit about HOT. Uh, what does it do and who does it do it for? Um, yeah, thanks for that question. I'm happy to hear you say you think HOT is a, is a household name. That's obviously the goal. Um, so HOT is a community and an NGO. Um, those are two things that are often in tension with each other. They're quite difficult to do both of those things at the same time, but that's the absolute asset and strength of HOT is being able to be both of those things in one. Um, the goal of everybody who's part of HOT, so that's everyone in the community, community members, partners, staff members is to map undermapped places so that missing maps aren't a factor in human suffering in any way um, 
all of us know, I imagine anyone listening to this podcast is very enthusiastic about maps and I don't need to tell you the value of maps and data, uh, but maps obviously enable all kinds of things like service delivery, disaster response, um, and we are aiming to sort of help full range full suite of things happen um and we're aiming to do that in an area home to a billion people across 94 countries so it's uh, quite the the fate um but we have a really simple vision we want to make sure that community needs are addressed through mapping that means we're solving real problems for real people we want to make sure everyone can access and contribute to the map which means we want to be lowering the barrier to entry to people to become mappers and we want to make sure that open map data is available and used so even though data is open that doesn't mean it's actually accessible to the majority of people um, and we're trying to um, make sort of strides there as well to make sure data is more usable Um, so yeah it's a small mission small mission and you said a billion people Mm -hmm. in 90 something countries yeah um there are seven billion people on the planet Mm -hmm. what about the other six are they already well served well, so I'd say the the billion goal is sort of looking at the areas in the world that are the least mapped. Um, gotcha. So we did a bunch of analysis um, a couple of years ago that sort of showed an area ro- home to a billion people is sort of roughly not really mapped at all. And then you have an area home to three billion people that's just like badly mapped. Um, so our first goal is that first billion, make sure there's a global baseline everywhere. Um, and those places are prioritised according to disaster risk and multidimensional poverty. Once that's done, I'm excited uh, for the day that that's done. Then I think we need to get into like the places where the maps could be improved, they could be better. Um, and you can go on to do a bunch of much more exciting and more complicated things. Uh, but I think the kind of low-hanging fruit area for anyone interested in this topic is, is pretty big. Um, um, so we're working on that that first chunk first. And I'm I'm going to make a guess here, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that will be largely in what we call the glo- global south. Yeah. So we all the countries that we work in are low and middle income countries, um, but it's we're actually looking at kind of pockets within them. Obviously, you you could map an area home to a billion people in just one country if you wanted to map the whole of India, um, but we. Uh, prioritise according to areas that are the most vulnerable, which is why we have um, such a high number of priority countries. Sometimes I wonder if you can actually call it priority countries if you have 94 of them, but uh, maybe that's another conversation. Yeah, but I think that's a reflection of how much of the world is so far behind the other part of the world. Yeah, exactly. And like my experiences, for example, living in Peru, I lived in Cusco, which is one of the most kind of tourist hotspots of the world. The centre of Cusco is unbelievably well mapped. Every single uh, cafe has its opening hours and all that stuff. But where I lived, which was a 10 minute drive from the centre, was totally unmapped. And it was absolutely impossible to even like get a taxi to take you to the right place. And so I think it's a really good example of that kind of mer- area where you might consider something mapped because the centre is mapped but actually it's in the peri-urban areas the informal areas just outside where you have higher levels of vulnerability and no data um, so yeah unfortunately we can't just say oh we'll map that country and then we're done it's about finding vulnerable places within um, every place that we work so how, who, do, who decides on that how do you 
Is that done by local communities making those decisions or is it done at the centre? So one thing I've always felt really strongly about HOT, um, one thing I've loved about HOT the entire um, time I've been involved, which was since 2014, um, is it's demand-based. We map based on requests. I think if you were wanting to be, you know, a fancy geospatial startup, you'd say, we're mapping the world and we're going to start here and we're going to end there. Um, And HOT, I think, up until uh, 2020 was just like a beautiful story of organic growth of kind of community members and partners that just came to heart to do something they wanted to achieve and they did that because they had a problem that they wanted to solve in a place Um, and I think keeping that demand-based focus um, is so important because that's how you know you're having impact otherwise as an NGO you can say we're mapping the world maybe it will be used but we're not really sure how or where or why and so if we're demand-based we know we're always solving a problem for a person which I think is something that motivates people to contribute they want to contribute to a cause um there's a lot of research that's been done by uh, various people but particularly the university of nottingham that sort of says the difference between osm and hot is people might go to osm because they're motivated by the mapping process and people come to hot because they're motivated by the purpose that they're mapping for and so you can see how you end up with like a bit of a cultural clash between those groups at times there's different kind of thought behind that but I think it's a really interesting um, premise that um, the cause is what's motivating people to map. That's fascinating. And uh, you've just answered so that long, that question has lurked at the back of my mind for the best part of, of well, certainly five or six years of the tension that is sometimes quite evident between HOT and OSM. And it does come down to the fact that you you summed it up beautifully, yeah. Because they've had that debate themselves about whether they're mapping for the mappers or whether they're mapping for the users of the map. And, you know, I think I spoke at a state of the map a decade ago or more, more than a decade ago, about whether it was a producer-dominated or a user-dominated organisation and suggesting that it was more producer-dominated than uh, consumer-dominated. Yeah. So who funds HOT? I mean, it it can't run on, on air and goodwill. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I wish it could. Um, we have a, a mix of funders, um, and it's really important for us to increasingly diversify that to kind of make sure that we're a sustainable organisation and we can offer things sustainably. Um, I think funding is one of the most difficult things when you're working in the contexts that we're working in because community members in the countries we work in face much more barriers to map than the traditional OSM community, which is more based in high-income countries and have more time and availability for things like volunteering. Um, So funding and consistent funding is so important for HOT because we need to be able to offer stability and um, kind of continuity in our community relationships. Um, We were really lucky to be awarded quite a substantial chunk of our our funds in 2020 via the Audacious Project, which is something that's run through TED. Um, That gave us um, quite a large chunk of funding to use over five years. Um, connected us with a lot of tech philanthropists Um, but in addition to that we have lots of contractual partners like the World Bank who maybe want to use the data that we're producing um, corporate partners um, where we have a sort of shared interest shared value in the map in a certain 
certain place. A lot of the places we're mapping are kind of the markets of the future for big tech and things like that. Um, and we apply for all sorts of different grant opportunities. Um, but yeah, it's something that we, um, we do need to sort of focus on, continually focus on to make sure that we're um, able to provide a kind of stable um, and increasing support um, where it's needed. So do you, so did I gather from that, that um, in the communities where you've got mappers working on mapping in a region of a country, you might be partly funding those mappers, providing them with an income? Yeah, um, we we rarely provide sort of a salary in that context, but we do provide um, funds for equipment, stipends, um, training sessions, etc. And the idea of that, the idea behind that is we want to incentivize mapping. We want to remove the barriers to mapping, but we don't want to create like a cost dependency on HOP for mapping. Um, a lot of the places that we're working, um, community members are trying to um, grow their community by making a living out of um, their mapping business, mapping as a business. Um, and I think that's an absolutely critical thing for the sustainability of OSM in those countries. Like if OSM needs to get to a place where it's used by every actor in the ecosystem from you know a social entrepreneur up to national government you need to make sure that there's kind of a an approach to actually um, make sure that that data is um, collected in increasing forms it's kept up to date it's usable it, people are available to train those people to use it you absolutely need an ecosystem around it sometimes i think it's a bit when you think about the contrast between say like a um, Germany and um, Senegal to pick two um, countries totally off the top of my head. It's kind of like um, if you were trying to fit a a boiler or something. If you're trying to fit a boiler in Germany, all of the um, ecosystem around that boiler exists, right? You have plumbers, you have engineers, you have all these uh, people who can actually support if that boiler breaks down. Um, In other locations... I think what we see, what we see in OSM, is you have that maybe initial injection of data, that creation of the map, the boiler, but you don't have that ecosystem around it to make sure that it keeps up to date, that it's valuable, that it's used, um, and I think it's really important that we all think seriously about that when we look at kind of what does inclusion mean in OSM because um, I think there's um, it's easy to take quite a purist stance where you sort of say you know this purely volunteer driven it needs to be a duocracy etc and I think it's hard for people to realize how exclusive that can be. Yeah and converse of that is that it's not about just creating data i don't think we have to actually create geospatial capability to make use of that data and they're not exactly the same thing but you can certainly see how if a group of people train build the map they can then go on to be the advocates for using the map data to improve sanitation to prove improve education health and to be ready on the ground if there is um a humanitarian catastrophe to actually be able to use the map in anger when when it when the when it's really needed because otherwise you've got the map but you haven't got the people who know how to use the map and make use of it in a in a digital sense um so yeah i i get that so 
Hot started as um, as disaster response. I think it was. I mean, for most of us, it was Haiti that sort of. We'd look at Haiti, you know, the earthquakes in Haiti and say that's the beginning of it. I mean, I think there may have been something there beforehand, but that's really the beginning of it. Is it still a disaster? I think you talked about it being more than disaster response, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. um, That disaster response focus is absolutely critical. It's part of the origin story and the today story. I think if you look at kind of key moments in HOT, you could easily compare, you know, Haiti 2010 with Nepal 2015 with um, the Turkey-Syria earthquake six months ago and see how the scaling of HOT has enabled incredibly... um, kind of different and increasing types of disaster response. Um, so I think, you know, it's absolutely critical and part of the kind of the blood of the organisation and the community um, and a huge kind of driving force for many of uh, the contributors. Um, but we do work in many other impact areas. Um, we work, um, our, we have kind of climate and disasters, which is sort of one of our um, impact areas. We're looking to make a huge kind of push in that um, over the next month with um, bringing more climate work in. Obviously, climate and disasters has kind of essentially collapsed into one um, impact area um, uh, these days. Um, but we also work in gender, public health, um, sustainable cities, and safe migration. Um, and so we're kind of intending to support work in, in all of those areas. Um, as you as you know, there are literally tens of thousands of ways that you can have impact with a map. Um, and I think one thing that's hard for us is sometimes to kind of draw boundaries around what that is and what that means so we can um, kind of signal clearly about the work that we want to do and support that well. But um, obviously there are, yeah, infinite ways in which maps um, can support the world. Um, the, the stuff around kind of climate and disasters, I think, is really interesting. Seeing those two kind of issues kind of compound and, and converge is, you know, I think it brings an opportunity for the mapper to become the map user in a way that we haven't seen before. Um, Often you think about the mapper and the map user being separate people. The mapper is an individual community member and the map user is part of an organization that's making a decision over an area. Um, But actually using the mapping process to improve community knowledge and awareness of the threats that they face, um, that is not well understood in the majority of the world. What is going to be the, the top threats that this location is going to face with um, with climate change and building that resilience locally um, and kind of also looking into like community members using that data for advocacy themselves I think is kind of a really interesting um, thing for us to think about that um, the kind of collapsing of the mapper and the map user um, is is really sort of coming to the front um, in that in that agenda and that overlaps quite a lot with the work that map action do because they also do a lot of capability building rather than as well i mean obviously they send people out when there is a disaster and they'll be first responders on the ground but um they also do a lot of training and stuff in advance to try and prepare communities so that they're ready to support themselves in the event of a disaster so i know we were going to talk about use cases but then you mentioned syria and turkey the earthquakes, which is the most recent sort of disaster that we've all been talking about. How prepared do you think 
you were in terms I mean you must have had you mapped these areas already um, those locations, um, no, they hadn't been the prior uh, prior focus of any projects, and we had done um, some fairly substantial projects in um, in Turkey previously, um, and through that we'd had the chance to work with um, Yeah Chizenla, which is uh, the kind of local Turkish OSM um, community and NGO. Um, so we were lucky in that we had strong relationships there already, which we could then um, build from in this response, um, but we hadn't done kind of a large amount of, ma- of mapping in this um, particular area previously. So Turkey's an interesting one for me. Um, the reason I homed in on it is that it's sort of right on the edge of the EU. It's, it's probably still in the lower income ranges, but it's certainly not down in abject poverty. It's not like, I guess, um, parts of Africa or India. Um, I would have thought it was well mapped or reasonably well mapped, no? Um, I think it depends who you talk to, that question. Okay. Um, I, I think parts of Turkey, especially tourist hotspots, are... Okay, uh, same thing as you were well talking mapped. about in Cusco. And other locations, exactly, are um, data is less available. But then obviously there's the question of it might be really well mapped in one system, which humanitarian responders don't have access to. So, um, you know, ensuring that it's mapped in a really strong way and open data sources is obviously really critical to us. Sometimes there might be a really good map of the place, but it's not in the hands of people who need it, which would still warrant an intervention. Um, And so... um, unsurprisingly with all of these things it's kind of shades of grey Turkey actually wasn't a priority country for us um, prior to the earthquake we worked in 94 countries Turkey was not one of them but um, considering the I mean that was the, the earthquake was a huge disaster, one of the greatest kind of disasters of the last few years. And, you know, the the expectation is that OSM will be there. OSM is something that humanitarian respondents use. It's It was a default for us that we're obviously going to respond, even though that's not um, a priority country. We're going to, um, we, we need to be there. We need to make sure that we're doing the work. And I think there was, I'm, I'm not going to remember the numbers perfectly off the top of my head, but there was something like 9,000 mappers um, and the data was used in all sorts of really interesting ways from kind of um, providing lighting in tent cities that were um, constructed um, to house people um, through to search and rescue which was something we hadn't really seen at a big scale since Haiti actually um, maps used in search and rescue Um, so um, it was really amazing seeing maps used at every stage of the disaster response cycle from the kind of um, yeah immediate search and rescue all the way through to kind of um kind of sort of preparing um sort of housing for the midterm um and it was also a really interesting example because we actually had the chance to kind of um use ai in a few locations um and you know ai is you know the news topic of the moment cycle in AI feels like it's about half an hour long, you've just about caught up and then there's a new thing Um, and I think AI has huge potential in our space but personally I think that potential is more interesting to talk about that in the data use side of things rather than the data creation side of things at the moment Um, so we actually saw AI was quite a substantial net negative uh, made mappers slower um, than just kind of humans 
um, right. themselves um, in the Turkey situation. Um, and I think like what we're not having conversations about is how can when can I ask ChatGPT just to like make me a map of this thing in this place and you know not have to spend you know years of my life trying to learn overpass like I think that's something that's going to be um really interesting and really game-changing in the sector is reducing the barrier to the entry to people to actually use the data in a meaningful way um rather than um kind of talking only about data generation I think we're going to need specific AI rather than sort of generalized AI because I mean the problem with if chat GPT made you a map you would it would make you a map regardless whether it was right or wrong at the moment and that's the <laughs> yeah exactly I mean visibility in a data set you, you don't need to uh, you don't need to sell me on that one Stephen. <laughs> but I do remember um I don't think I was a map I I think I may have done a tiny little bit in in Haiti, certainly by the time of the tsunamis in um, where were they? I can't even remember. Philippines were they East Asia, yeah East Asia. By the time of the tsunami, I was sort of a a relatively regular armchair mapper, um, and in fact, I remember getting my kids who were teenagers at the time, saying, what are you doing, Dad? Then coming and sitting on the sofa and seeing it. And I created two extra mappers that way. But um, at that time, you know, we got aerial imagery and you sat and you traced buildings or roads or whatever the task was from the task manager. Um, a lot of that presumably can be done quite easily with AI nowadays and is being done with AI, I imagine, no? Uh, I think it depends on where you are. I think if you're somewhere where the buildings are very uniform and look like each other, then that is possible. If you're somewhere where the buildings all have corners that are right angles and the roofs are made of similar things and the roads are paved, definitely AI um, can be used. Um, if you're somewhere where you're trying to map brown huts which are somewhat circular but not perfectly on a brown uh -huh. landscape surrounded by brown rocks surrounded by trees with no leaves that is a uh, quite the task for ai uh, and i have not seen anything which is even remotely close to being um being doable there um similar question comes i think with you know what's the difference between a dry riverbed and a road uh, an unpaved road you know right. those things are really really difficult to see um hot is working on a really um interesting ai project called FAIR, with the AI of FAIR being in capitals, which is trying to kind of um, offer an alternative to these like global AI models that kind of are applied to the world. You know, there's a lot of the criticism of AI is that it's not localized, it's not specific to the people that it's being applied to. Um, and the goal of FAIR is that the community themselves get to train the AI model. Um, so the community will do a sort of a certain amount of mapping to train the AI model to then be applied to their location. So it means that hopefully the data quality is really good because the, the data that's used to train the model is kind of from people who live there, but also that you can set different thresholds for the kind of quality and amount of training data you need. Um, so, for example, if it's a more uniform area, you might need less data. And if you're in a real hurry, like if it's a disaster, you might want to do something very quickly versus if it's in an incredibly complex area, you might want to kind of increase the amount of training data that you use. Um, and yeah, it's kind of intended to 
kind of provide an alternative that um, is sort of sensitive to the local nature of each area and puts humans um, in the loop and make sure that kind of humans are included in the decision making that the AI is doing because um, yeah no data is uh, uploaded anywhere without it being verified by a human first um, and gotcha. created by the community. Um, and it's interesting, as you were saying that, I was realising yeah, my own experience of, try, of trying to map in those areas. And it, is it a riverbed or a dry riverbed or is it a, a track that vehicles can use? Is that a round building or is it something else? You know, um, and, you know, we talk about aerial remote sensing and aerial imagery, but um, yeah, it's not that clear. And particularly if you're sitting in North London trying to map somewhere 2,000 miles away that you've never visited. You've got no idea what things look like on the landscape. You know, um, I can imagine sort of the big tech companies that map build, you know, have taken imagery of the planet. They recognize square-cornered buildings easily, yeah, but I can see exactly why that's a challenge. Um, so I want to go on. I want to jump to Audacious because... Um, First of all, it's just a great name, the Audacious Project. Um, and um, what were the what were the aims and objectives of the Audacious Project for Hot? Yeah, I agree with you. It's a very uh, very motivating name, um, and it gave us the chance to kind of think audaciously for the first time I think um, the and by that I do, actually not think sorry that's the wrong word I think to act in a more audacious way for the first time thinking audaciously was within the hot and OSM community for yonks and yonks right you don't have to look far in hot and OSM to find people with really big ideas and huge things that they want to achieve that you know years and years ago people would have said were very unlikely and now have turned out pretty good um I think we're talking today on OSM's 19th birthday, either yesterday or today, I think. Yeah, um, this week, so, definitely. Yeah, and um, so I think what Audacious enabled us to do was actually think about doing those things in a, a structured um, way. Um, we... Uh, pitched this idea of mapping an area home to a billion people, which was something that was posited by the HOT voting members um, to HOT the organisation. Can we make that a goal? And we thought, that's an amazing goal, um, but how are we going to do that? Um, and we came up with this kind of idea that, okay, we had at that time we had 200,000 volunteers. So if we could get five times more volunteers and if we could roughly half the time it takes to map, we could probably get there. Um, that is incredibly simple board strokes terms. We absolutely um, are kind of trying to achieve those things but the path is bumpy uneven and takes a long time um, we're about 70% of the way to that goal to map an area home to a billion people tasking manager has had about 645,000 users um, so we've uh, we're kind of trending well on those KPIs but I think all of us know that the value of maps is not in that billion and million figure the value of maps is in local data that is actually used um, and I think kind of 
working at both ends of that is something that we try to kind of um, keep an eye on at all times, making sure that we're making steady progress on that top line goal, but that we're really focusing on innovation in local mapping um, and supporting local data ecosystems. Um, in the last three years since we started this project, we have... Um, uh, supported mapping communities with grants in 54 of 94 countries um, so that's sort of 54 places where we've provided grants capacity building trainings events all, all of that um, and um, yeah really looking forward to uh, getting that number up because I think you know it's a it's a situation where um, you know ongoing support for those communities and um, continually trying to make that pie bigger um, for everybody is really important um, I often think of kind of OSM and HOT as a kind of a real uh, example of like the rising tide raises all ships like every success for anyone in that ecosystem is a success for everybody um, but we um, you know and, and that's one thing that we're trying to do is make sure that sort of if HOT um, is fortunate in securing more funding how can we channel some of that to communities so that they also have the resources that they need. So I was going to ask you whether HOT was uh, volunteer-driven versus top-down. But I think, actually, what I was hearing there is that there's sort of like this overarching vision to deliver, to to map the uh, a million, a billion people in 90-odd countries, but that actually the projects are started at the ground um, and they, from what you said, they apply for funding and support from the centre and... Um, you must have some way of evaluating whether they can deliver, but uh, it is very much from the ground up rather than from the top down. That is absolutely the intention. Um, whether we always live up to that in every context, you know, um, I, I'm not sure, but the intention is that this is always, um, that, that, that it's kind of community-led um, in terms of the, the projects that we do. Um, to be honest, I... I'm, you might have to bear with me while I use a slightly unusual analogy, but I, I personally, I think the kind of top-down versus bottom-up question isn't quite the right one. Um, we want to make sure communities are centred in all the decisions. So, for example, in the granting that we do, one of the evaluation um, things, uh, one of our evaluation metrics is, like, did the community achieve the thing that the community said that they wanted to do with no value judgment from us? Like, of course, we want to collect other KPIs, as all organisations do, like, um, you know, how much mapping happened, where all the funds spent in an appropriate way, etc. But kind of did the community achieve what they set out to, I think is a really important um, question to sort of make sure that we are trying to um, support. But yeah, rather than sort of top down, bottom up, I think I often think about like, like the cathedral and the bazaar, which is obviously like a very common analogy in the open source space. Are you a cathedral, which is, you know, highly organized, very beautiful, very strict way of doing things? Or are you a bazaar where, you know, it might look really messy, but really beautiful things happen in the bazaar. Um, and yeah, for those unfamiliar, the cathedral and the bazaar is quite a kind of um, seminal um, open source text. Um, and sometimes I think about hot as 
you know, we have this community and organisation that are in tension, and the question for me is, like, are we a bazaar within a cathedral or a cathedral within the bazaar? Um, and my preference would be for the second. Like, I think the second being, like, the bazaar is the community and the organisation has a role to play within that, but what we really want to put the emphasis and focus on is the community. But that requires a huge amount of unrestricted funding beyond which is typically like kind of not that feasible and so sometimes I think we need to sort of stray into the former where 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 kind of um required um but I think yeah I don't think it's either or I think the true value is in doing both I think there are very few organizations in the world that can be both a cathedral and a bazaar in one but there's tension in that and there's people in the organization that need to absorb and calibrate that tension and that's really difficult um so yeah it's a very um it's a bit of an unusual analogy but I think kind of speaks to something that's really important to think about which is you know it's not either or this isn't a polarized situation this is like yes and and how can we make those two things act in harmony okay um we're running out of time and I've got one last big question for you um and you've been incredibly self-reflective Rebecca throughout this conversation you know I mean you you don't make out that everything is perfect and you know all the answers which is I find really impressive um so you've been in the job six months roughly um and let's just jump forward four to five years right that will be a good period of time as chief executive of uh, of hot what do you want just tell me your vision for where you will be at the end of four or five years you as a person and hot as an organization um wow well, i think that's that's definitely the first time i've been asked that question on that time frame um let me have a think um, i think i think i'm really hopeful that on that time frame we will be much 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 more focused on data use my goal by then is that data creation is something that is um kind of working organically um that there's the communities exist, they're fortified, they're able to act, that they have ownership over the local, uh, the data of their places, they're well set up to do that. And what we're kind of innovating in and trying to push is getting data use into more spaces and places um, and getting data use into kind of every level of society. Um, you know, in many parts of the world, the problem is that there's too much data and people don't know what to do about it. And that's not the problem in the countries that we work in. The problem that is that we need to create that baseline. But once we've done that, then we're going to be in that space of how do we get this to be absolutely um, kind of uh, useful and usable for impact um, Yeah, in, in that many places. And I think kind of if we could be in that space, that, you know, would be so inspiring. I think that kind of every, every week we hear a new way in which people are using data in the hot community. And, you know, I get the chance to be re-inspired by the possibility and the potential. Um, but there's, there's so, so much more there. And so, uh, yeah, my hope in four to five years is that we're really kind of have our teeth into that space um, and are, are getting, um, getting data and OpenStreetMap used as much as possible. Wow. Um, and I'm right with you there. You know, I mean, all of us who've been geographers and who passionately believe in what we can do with this data and how we can make 
people's lives better, the world a better place, you know, through using geography, you know, and I mean, although he's not into open source, you know, Jack Dangerman has been a fantastic advocate for the power of geography to improve the world, you know, and listening to you, you know, being able to do that for a billion people would be a fantastic, even making a start on it is a fantastic achievement. Rebecca, I, I can't thank you enough. I know you're busy. Um, thank you so much for your time. Before you go, I'm going to ask you two more questions. One, how, if people want to get involved in HOT, people listening to this podcast, what should they do? Well, usually I would say to map, but um, I imagine you have a very capable audience with regard uh, to mapping, so I'm going to say to validate. Um, I think uh, validation is something that gives confidence in the map and builds the skills of mappers. Um, that's the most critical part of it. It's not just about okaying the data. It's about giving feedback to the person that made it to make them a better data and kind of pass on your skills um, to others. So validation um, is absolutely something um, we really need. Um, we really need to grow and, and that work is, is so critical. Um, and if you're interested to get involved beyond um, the mapping side of things, you want to get involved with people, um, then we have also sorts of working groups um, to join. We have a community working group, an activations working group, a tech working group, all of which are kind of uh, looking to take the kind of hive mind of people that are really interested in open source geo and um, figure out ways that we can um, use their insights and skills and experience to um, improve and grow uh, and grow in hot. Great. Okay. In that case, Afterwards, we'll, you'll give me a couple of links and we'll put them in the show notes so that people can have a look and get in touch. And right now I've got a final ask for you that you weren't expecting. Um, you've got to, I want you to commit to coming to a geomob and talking about hop at, hot at a geomob in London within the next 12 months. Very, I, li I like the uh, effort to make me publicly accountable on that one. Um, yeah. I commit to doing that. <laughs> Brilliant. Rebecca, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for being on the GeoMob podcast. Have a great day. Thank you very much. Bye. Thanks for joining us today and listening to the GeoMob podcast. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Please get in touch with us if you have any feedback or suggestions for topics we should cover. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, you can sign up for our monthly mailing list where we keep you informed about upcoming events. You can, of course, also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is geomob. Thanks for listening, and hope to see you at a geomob event soon.